Roxo Media House. A signal 51 is police code for an investigation. A law enforcement proceeding that is a systemic and thorough attempt to learn the facts about a possible crime that is complex and whose facts and circumstances are generally hidden, at least initially, behind obstacles that can be coincidental and or man-made. Investigations methods are formal. I'm John Henry, a journalist. My partner is Jake White, a retired Fort Worth police sergeant. Together, we examine the difficult cases of law enforcement, both in Fort Worth and around the region. This is Signal 51. The show is designed specifically for a more mature audience. Some of the content is graphic and is not intended for younger audiences. This week on the Signal 51 Chronicles, Intruders at the Steak and Ale. Jake, we got some news this week. The return of the iconic steak and ale. Were you a steak and ale eater growing up? Oh, I thought it was highfalutin back in the day. It certainly was. Man. You get a get you a twelve dollar steak there or something. Just that name, the ambiance, I did hear. Well, I didn't hear this. I think they should do this. I think they should be the first restaurant to apply for a waiver of sorts yeah and actually allow smoking in the restaurant well we want want the ambiance the true steak and ale ambiance yeah be like uh it'd be like you know it's like the mule pub without smoking you know how's that yeah look what happened to it (laughs) met its demise well they're going into grand prairie i heard so i don't know if grand prairie has an anti-smoking ordinance or not i think everywhere does I mean, I've never been in anywhere in the last I, 10 years. I was in Irving doing, I was working in Irving about 10 years ago. Yeah. A little, uh, a little, a little longer than that, 12 years ago, maybe. And I walked into some restaurant, get something to eat. And I go, something's weird in here. I was sitting in the bar. They were still smoking. You could still smoke there. I'm a proponent for just for steak and ale not smoking as a whole and not in restaurants but i want the real authentic (laughs) steak and ale to return man with some good a1 some good a1 the cardinal sin of ketchup (laughs) ketchup on your steak Mm. it's like a yeah i've heard that's the cardinal sin oh yeah i I was i thought you were gonna say that was missouri thing or something for me it was (laughs) it was well done with ketchup well oddly we were working on this story when that news broke that the steak steak and ale is making is being is reborn yeah coming back but it was quite a big thing well big is i guess as big a thing as it could be in 1989 and this case involves the time frame is mid-october of 1989 and it was typical of any other fall, save for international incidents unique to the time, such as you might remember the Panamanian dictator Manuel Noriega. He was pushing his luck as a pariah. In mere months, flushed out of power and sent to a U.S. federal prison for his misdeeds. Locally, at that time, the president of the Southwestern Theological Seminary, Russell Dilday, was pushing his luck too. Charged by the Southern Baptist Convention with the mortal sin of being a moderate. Who the hell does he think he is? What was he thinking? How dare him? (laughs) In Fort Worth, the city manager at that time, and also a former Star-Telegram employee, David Ivory was wrestling with allegations that he accepted more than $30,000 in loans and other benefits from an attorney and land developer who had interest and city business. That's a no-no. In the school district, here's a case we need to pursue. Authorities were trying to figure out what to do with a 12-year-old boy who confessed to killing his teacher, but then recanted. The Cowboys. You've heard of them, right? Yes, I've heard of them. Our producer, Joel, is in here too. Joel, you've heard of the Cowboys before. Well, we think it's bad now. In 1989, they were in the midst of a 1-15 season, Jimmy Johnson's first season. Yep. Certainly one of the worst since the franchise's earliest days. 
But the dominant headline for October 16th, a Monday, would be of tragedy and uncommon heroism. This is my commandment, Jesus Christ said. Love one another as I love you. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Robert Reed, who went by Bob, had been a manager for Steak and Ale Restaurant since 1981. In eight years, he had ascended to managing partner for the chain, which included making decisions impacting every location, as well as being in management training. He was described by coworkers as an enthusiastic manager who inspired loyalty and cheerfulness among other employees. A native of San Angelo, Bob had attended UT in Austin, and he had been a Fort Worth resident for four years at that time. At age 35, he was married with three daughters, and he was a member of the Polytechnic Masonic Lodge. By any definition, Bob Reed was a hero, whose final act in a life cut short by senseless savagery was an all-too-rare example of bravery in the face of danger and the nobility of the human spirit. Bob's act of supreme unselfishness accomplished more for his fellow man than most people do in their entire lives. Bob was working a Saturday night, October 15th, at the Steak and Ale on Camp Bowie. Today is the location of the very popular Fred's Texas, itself a fourth institution made through the cultural icons of burgers and beers. I'm a believer in burgers and beers. It's a great combo. I think the mantra there is is hand cramping beer. Do I have that right? Or is I, that somewhere else? You may be right on that. It's cold, though, I'll tell you that much. And the burgers are good. But in October 1989, on the 15th, presumably it was like any other Saturday night at the restaurant. Wait staff, no doubt tired from being on their feet for the hours-long evening dinner shift, shoving steak and potatoes in front of customers, finishing up with their last tables. One table, however, had plans, had no plans to leave peacefully. The incident that ended in tragedy began at about 11.30 p.m. when two men and a woman finished their meals. The men stood and pointed semi-automatic pistols at 32 employees and patrons and herded them into the rear of the restaurant. They demanded money. The robbers threatened to shoot anybody who saw anything, according to witnesses. One employee who had arrived to help close the restaurant saw what was happening and walked back out hurriedly. She called police. Police found all the restaurant's doors locked when they arrived. They knocked, a detective said. Bob answered through the door, saying everything was all right. The officers, though, didn't believe him. The tone told them so. He was stalling for more time, said he didn't have the keys, according to police. The police pulled back to watch. Inside, the three armed robbers became frightened and decided to use the group as hostages. Bob told the three, quote, Take me, I'll go with you, but leave my people alone. As police watched, three robbers and Bob came out of the rear door. The two men held Bob, one on each arm, their pistols poking him in the ribs. The woman followed them. Next, the robbers forced a young couple out of a car, stopped at a light on an adjacent street. Officers then began closing in when Bob struggled as the men tried to force him into the back of the car. One of the men fired several shots into Bob and shoved him into the car. The two men fired at officers as they fled. The officers, fearing for Bob's safety, did not return fire. Four police in cars and a helicopter and Department of Public Safety troopers chased the car on US-287 to Southeast Fort Worth. At one point, the assailants threw objects out of the car. Police later recovered a machine pistol on Highway 287. Near the intersection of Highway 287 and Interstate 20, the suspects drove into a residential neighborhood at the corner of Banbury and Oak Haven. They threw out another machine pistol, which was later recovered. One of the men then jumped out of the car and was chased by police. He was arrested in a nearby backyard. The robber's car then began turning onto Forest Hill Drive, but was cut off by a police car and hit a curb. The two remaining suspects were arrested as they tried to flee. Police found Bob in the back seat, lying face down, a fatal victim of these ill-conceived plans. The shooting frustrated officers. 
Said one witness, you've got a man on each arm sticking a gun in his chest. What can you do? Bob had almost certainly saved the lives of those whose place he took. A stake and ale managerial colleague said that he died a hero is no surprise. Words of honor from his community in Fort Worth flooded in. Said one quote, as I reflect upon the past year, I remember a deed in Fort Worth that did not receive sufficient recognition and, and appreciation. Robert Reed, a district supervisor for Steak and Ale Corporation, was slain by three armed robbers at a Steak and Ale restaurant in West Fort Worth. The slaying occurred in the parking lot during the getaway attempt after Mr. Reed convinced the robbers to take him as their sole hostage instead of following their original plan of making hostages out of all the customers and employees at the restaurant. As an ex-military officer, I am familiar with descriptions of deeds of soldiers and sailors and airmen who gave their lives in combat and were awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor posthumously. Without exception, these heroes were motivated by a spirit of self-sacrifice and an outpouring of love for their compatriots. Likewise, Mr. Reed committed the ultimate act of self-sacrifice and supreme expression of love for his fellow man. His actions were no less courageous, no less inspirational, and no, and no less valiant than the deeds of Medal of Honor winners. Mr. Reed is a hero in every sense of the word, said another person. In police custody were Stephen Staley, 27, Tracy Duke, 23, of Denver, and Brenda Rayburn, 22, of California. All were being held in the Tarrant County Jail in lieu of $500,000 bail, each on charges of capital murder. Police were also investigating the group in connection with robberies in Colorado, Oklahoma, and elsewhere in Texas. Staley was an escapee from a Denver, Colorado halfway house. Duke was a probation violator from California. Authorities from California, in fact, had issued a warrant for his arrest for violating his parole on auto theft charges. Staley and Duke had lengthy police records in Colorado and California. Rayburn, on the other hand, did, did not have a police record. Staley gave police a written statement implicating himself in the shooting. In fact, Staley and Duke confessed to several robberies in Colorado, Kansas, and Oklahoma. Witnesses also identified Staley in a lineup as the man who robbed a Fort Worth pizza restaurant only days earlier. Police said that the three apparently committed the robberies just merely to survive. In all, the suspects have been linked to 10 heists in the four states over a month's time. But that wasn't all. Investigators with the Sheriff's Department in Arapahoe County, Colorado, had also uncovered the badly decomposed body of a man in a creek bed in a remote area in that county. They found it based on information provided by Rayburn. In court testimony, the sheriff's officials said they were given the general location of where the body was buried, tracked the odor to the gravesite, and saw a hand sticking up from the grave, a grave that had been ravaged by animals. Jim Davis shared a room with Staley at the Colorado Halfway House, where both men were serving the final months of their prison sentences. Twelve years for aggravated robbery and aggravated automobile theft for Staley, and a four-year sentence on a fraud charge for Davis. Staley had told police that I was, quote, having problems at the halfway house and I wanted to escape. He continued, things blew up at the halfway house. I told Jim Davis I wanted to leave, and Jim Davis told me not to be stupid. Davis was the one who introduced Duke and Rayburn to Staley. Staley said in his statement that he and Duke had talked of committing robberies. Staley said Duke had threatened to kill Davis over some unpaid debt. Staley said he wanted Duke to help him rob a Mexican food restaurant in the Denver area. Said Staley in a statement, he said he would help do the restaurant if I'd help him do Jim. Staley said he arranged to meet Davis in an isolated area outside of Littleton. He said he and Duke drove to the meeting place, hid two shovels, loaded a gun, and waited for Davis. He said he, he directed Davis to where Duke was waiting. When they reached it, Staley moved away, heard Duke say something to Davis, and then heard gunshots. Staley and Duke buried Davis in a shallow grave, covering him with dirt and branches. Duke later gave Staley the gun to use in the restaurant robbery. The halfway house reported that Davis reported Davis as an escapee on September 21st, less than a month 
from the fatal encounter at the Steak and Ale on the west side. Staley was convicted and sentenced to death in 1991. More than 33 years after the crime, he remains on death row. His conviction was the subject of years of appellate court action. Staley is a paranoid schizophrenic. He was granted a stay by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals in the aughts after his attorneys successfully argued that the state was violating Staley's constitutional rights by forcing him to take powerful anti-psychotic drugs so that he could be considered mentally competent for execution. John Stickles, a lawyer for Staley, said that a psychologist had spent three hours with the inmate at the Polunsky unit in Livingston and had concluded that after two weeks without his medication, he was no longer competent. Quote, he is delusional again. He believes there is a big conspiracy orchestrated by the state and that everybody, everybody is part of the conspiracy, Stickles said. He further went on to say, quote, he believes that he was wrongfully convicted because of the conspiracy. Staley's case presented a unique question for the courts. His lawyers argue that it is unethical and unconstitutional for the state to forcibly medicate Staley so that he can be executed. Prosecutors in Tarrant County, though, argued that Staley's treatment is in his, quote, best medical interests, not solely so that he can be executed and that his condition has improved over the years. There has to be some sort of sense of finality, said Jim Gibson, an assistant criminal district attorney in Tarrant County. This is the judgment of a duly impaneled jury. We believe that it is completely reasonable for the trial court to simply say, quote, take your medication. According to reports, jail staffers have found Staley in his cell covered with feces and urine. He has bruised himself by banging his head against the walls. And he has lain catatonic for so long that he wore a bald spot on the back of his head. In February 2006, Staley's execution was stayed after the court found him mentally incompetent. In 2006, he told a psychologist that the jury found him guilty because the judge was trying to steal his one-of-a-kind faded red 1958 pickup, which he said had a $1.5 million street value. And because Oprah Winfrey paid off the jury. Mm. Oprah uh, could afford it, but yeah, probably not, huh? I'm thinking probably not. The psychologist wrote in an affidavit that it was uncertain whether Staley's competency could be restored and that he was, quote, profoundly psychotic and delusional in spite of his medication. After that stay, Tarrant County State District Judge Wayne Salvant ordered Staley to be forcibly medicated. When Staley's lawyers urged the judge to consider the input of doctors as to what kind of medication, if any, would be the best treatment, Salvan rejected the notion. Quote, no, I'm overruling that, Salvant said during a hearing on the matter. He further said, I'm not going to let the doctors tell me whether or not they want to do this. Salvant wrote in his order that forcibly medicating Staley was in the inmate's best interest to prevent his frightening delusions and reduce the threat he posed to himself. And he wrote, quote, this court finds that the state has an essential interest in ensuring that the sentence of this court is carried out. In a 2010 interview with the psychologist, it continues, Staley told him that he had made 180 zillion from the development of a computer program before he was sent to death row and that the medication he was forced to take was actually a concoction of peacock feathers and alcohol. It's an interesting that would be combo there. Yeah. Still, psychologists concluded that Staley was competent to be executed because he recognized that he was still being put to death for his role in a murder. And he said, comparatively, Staley's condition seemed to improve. Despite the perceived improvements, in 2011, Staley's dosage of the medication was doubled after an incident in which he soiled his cell and refused to cooperate with guards at the Tarrant County Jail. And in May, jail staff found him pacing in his cell, 
muttering incomprehensibly and making gagging sounds. Two weeks before one of the scheduled lethal injections in the early 2010s, another psychologist evaluated Staley and signed an affidavit concluding that he was competent, but that he could not decompensate easily and quickly returned to a psychotic state. And she wrote, quote, there is a reasonable degree of psychological certainty that without forced medication, he would not be competent. When she evaluated Staley again, she found that he was no longer competent. That raises the primary question that Staley's lawyers want answered. Whether the constitution allows the state to force someone to take medications so that he or she can be executed. The American Psychiatric Association and the American Medical Association both consider it ethically unacceptable for doctors to provide treatments to patients when the purpose is for execution. And state Supreme Courts in Louisiana and South Carolina have ruled that forcibly medicating patients so they can be executed violates those states' constitutions. Stickles, Staley's attorney, said he, he had asked Tarrant County prosecutors unsuccessfully to consider commuting Staley's sentence to life in prison. Said Stickles, quote, it is obvious that the whole purpose of medicating him was to get him competent to be executed. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's constitutional. But Gibson, the Tarrant County prosecutor, said that execution isn't the only reason to keep Staley medicated. It protects him from his own frightening delusions and psychosis. The fact that he has regained competency under the medication is a benefit, Gibson said at the time. The state's highest criminal court has ruled that a trial court cannot force a death row inmate to take his medication so that he'll be healthy enough to be executed. Explaining how Stephen Staley wound up in this time and place is above all our pay grades, but his miserable life can probably be explained by both genetic and environmental factors. During the sentencing phase, his mother testified that she once tried to kill her son by driving a wooden stake through the boy's body. Said Shirley Staley, the mother, quote, I went to the garage and got a large hammer and a stake of wood and tried to kill Steve with it. She said she placed the stake against her son, who was then six or seven years old, and tapped it with the hammer before she suddenly quit. I realized what I was doing and went and sat down on the couch, she said. Staley's sister recalled the same incident, saying she heard him crying and went to his bedroom to see why. When she opened the door, she saw, quote, my brother lying on the bed with his shirt open with a lot of nicks all over his chest. I saw my mother with a hammer and stake trying to kill him. The sister described another time when the mother approached the children with an upraised butcher knife. I thought she was doing the dishes, the sister said, but she came into the living room and had a butcher knife in her hand. She said, I'm sorry, kids, but I have to kill you. In 2013, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals ruled that trial courts lacked the authority to order involuntary medication to restore competency for execution. The Supreme Court's ruled that condemned inmates must understand what death means and why the state wants to kill them before the execution can be carried out. The court did not address, however, whether forcibly medicating someone so he can be executed violates the U.S. Constitution. But the case, of course, highlights a long-standing debate about the appropriateness of restoring someone's mental health merely to kill him. It's time for us to recognize that it's not civilized to forcibly medicate someone just merely to execute them, said Stickles. That doesn't make any sense. Without the drugs, Staley would be mentally incompetent and would thus linger on death row with no prospect of execution. A criminal defendant should not be able to avoid sentence because he refuses to take his medication, said Chuck Mallon, chief of, of, of the appellate division for Tarrant County. The court should have the, afford, the authority to enforce its own judgment. The Tarrant County appellate chief went on to say that he was also disappointed the Court of Criminal Appeal, Appeals didn't address the constitutional question, which of course has been bouncing around state courts across the country for years. As for Tracy Duke, He's rotting in a Texas prison, serving consecutive life terms for his role. Rayburn was sentenced to 30 years, though she is no longer incarcerated. Duke was denied parole in 2018 based on his criminal history and nature of the offense. The record indicates that the offender 
has repeatedly committed criminal episodes that indicate a predisposition to commit criminal acts upon his release, reads to legislative verbiage. Also, the record indicates the instant offense has elements of brutality, violence, assaultative behavior, or conscious selection of victims' vulnerability indicating a conscious disregard for the lives, safety, and property of others such that the offender poses a continuing threat to society. Duke is up for another review in 2027. There's a lot to unpack with this one. Yep. We can starting of- with I got a question for you as a as a as a retired police officer. Yeah. Who served your city honorably for more than 22 years. Yeah. So when the police arrive at uh, the uh, steak and ale, doors locked. Mm-hmm. They knock on the door. Uh, uh, Bob Reed tells them that everything's fine, but they can tell that everything's not fine. So they hang out back there. Mm-hmm. What is? And then they then then they see him coming out the back door, being held obviously against his will. What's the training on something like that? Is there training on on how to handle something like yeah. that? Remember that old saying, you got to earn your paycheck sometimes? Yep. Yeah. Things were a little bit different back then. Tactics were different back then. Um, them not going inside. It's not something that probably would happen. It, not even today, unless they started hearing shots being fired. Mm. Then you're going so in. So they would not go in. Yeah. If yeah, They wouldn't go in unless they heard shots being fired. Gotcha. It's just it's your Hollywood hostage scenario. Uh-huh. You know they've got the negotiators trying to get the hostage takers to release the hostages or surrender, but they're not going to run in there because of the risk that that would pose. Now, on the contrary, if gunshots start going off, they're going in. It doesn't matter if they're a SWAT team or a patrol officer or whoever it is, they're going in. We saw that um, in Uvalde, right? Look that's what, what happens. That's what came to mind. Yeah. Yeah. Look what happens when you don't. Well, this you also proffered or offered during that time that the risk of going in if you don't hear gunshots. You've all the. I, that was a little. I mean, you're talking about kids, man. I mean, at that like being able. I don't know. There's a there's a whole lot wrong. You with you that raised thing. the point though. Is is the point I'm trying to make on whether or not they heard gunshots and. The impact that had on decision making right. whether to go in. Right. Well, anyway, go ahead with this. So on this one, them not going in, fine. Okay. I mean, under the facts that we provided, mm-hmm. when the hostage comes out though, with two pistols pointed at his ribs, being held in each arm, that's a hard one, because I can't think of a scenario in present day where that car is driving off. Because look what it creates, right? We don't know if he had gotten medical attention right away. Does that change the outcome? Right. We don't know. Well, they also carjacked somebody. So they had to walk to wherever. Right. All well, right. so I, I guess what I'm getting at is, is there's no way they're getting in a car right. driving off. Right. I mean, there is the idea that you might have drawn the short straw on your shift that day. But you're, I mean, I can't see a scenario where you're not approaching. Mm -hmm. I mean, when they're trying to leave, you've got to stop it. You can't let him leave. I mean, guns to his ribs or not, um, you know, at the end of the day, if you're the, if you're the cop or the cops walking up, they're more than likely going to raise their gun and start shooting at you. Mm -hmm. When, which they did. And they, which fired, they, they did. fired at them anyway, yeah. But sometimes that's what you're paid to do. And it sucks, but it's what it is. That's the job. That's the job. I mean, we've had a we had a hostage thing here several years ago. And they had to go in and do a hostage rescue. And, you know, here seeing those or hearing those guys go in, guys that you know, I mean, they're they sound cooler than the other side of the pillow when they go in, but yeah. I can only imagine that that wasn't the case. I mean, I think ideally on this, the goal would have been to 
get as close as they possibly could have to the hostage takers and stop them. Whatever that looks like, Mm -hmm. right? They didn't, but again, techniques, times were different back then. So I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to be critical of their decision. Hard to do that, of course. Yeah. Hard to do it. I mean, but yeah, that, that would have been, that would have been more than likely different today, at least here. I mean, because it's constant training on that stuff. Well, I was going to say, what is the training on that stuff? I mean, you, you, are you put in front of scenarios like that? Yeah. Very how to handle it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the academy or is that like, uh, continuing education type stuff throughout and it depends i mean you can go to outside training and get additional Mm -hmm. the other thing that's different though the way the police the way many especially a big city there are tactical teams on on duty almost 24 7 yeah right you've got the that's what i was going to ask next i mean you've got the major leagues you got your swat team right but they even have a very quick response, even if it's 1130 at night. Well, and it sounds like it started 1130 and they were out the door in like seven minutes. Yeah, that that would not have been time for them to get there. Right. Um, that is one of the things where the first responding officers are, are going to have to do the best that they possibly can. I think there's a lot of ways they could have handled it or a lot of ways that it would be handled now that's different. Um, but ultimately him leaving them getting in a car chase with a hostage shot is like the worst case scenario that you could possibly imagine um and something i don't think would happen today yeah and of course the other thing is these guys were all out of staters yeah so you it's not like anybody knew who they were like if, if you're a police officer on a beat and you know you know these they, they didn't have any idea who these people were well this is uh eerily similar to the uh, texas 7 in 2000 yeah, yeah. escaped uh, inmates from from uh yeah i can't remember texas prison i can't remember where yeah, it was either which one but i mean they killed the irving police officer yeah uh very very similar um instead of a restaurant it was an academy sporting goods store, yeah right so and they i think they committed a string of of uh of robberies too i believe yeah just like these guys did i think one of them's still alive i think the other ones have been executed or died in prison but i think the one from Maybe the one from Dowerton Gardens. I can't remember his name, but I think he's still he's still alive. I think the other thing we need to weigh in on big time on this is the uh, legal aspect. Yeah, sure. There's certainly. a ton. So we're going to get the resident legal expert, Sean Furkey. Sean Furkey. Yeah, you got him. We rolled. We just rolled right into this, Sean. No prep time, nothing. I'm kidding. Nice. I, I just made a margarita. Am I on the air? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Li- I'm, I'm live? Yeah, they said the other day that, that, yeah, you are live. They said the other day that uh, it was National Margarita Day. It, yes. My wife sent me a uh, a not very uh, subtle hint that it was National Margarita Day and that I needed to go get margarita mix and limes. Mm-hmm. Now, I thought National Margarita Day was was every day. That's what I thought. I think that's taco days every day. Taco day, taco day. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, there is a uh, there's a every every day has like a designated thing now. I don't know when that started, but yeah, because yesterday you were saying it was uh, TX and Coke day. Ah, that's right. Yes, that's right. Oh, I'm a big and, TX fan. And then oh, yeah, Wednesday oh. was Vienna sausage day. I know you enjoyed <laughs> that, Jake. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> got me got me i've got nothing that was a good one i'll give you that um steak and ale 1989 camp buoy iconic but i gotta start did you ever dine at steak and ale when you were a kid oh absolutely are you kidding uh we used to live in woodhaven over at east fort worth there was a oh steak that's and ale right, right there right off 30. 30 yeah off yeah there, didn't they have like the and I might be thinking of another place, but because I, I can remember the decor like very well. But didn't they have like kind of metal plates? I don't remember. I don't remember the metal plates. I just okay. remember. I thought for me, I thought it was the fanciest restaurant in the world. Yeah, I, I'm five star dining. I, that's <laughs> it's all in the name too. Yeah. Steak and ale. That's and I didn't all even know what is. ale was. But yeah. I was just, oh. 
Yeah, I mean, it, fine dining at Steak and Ale. And what's funny is, is like, right, if you, when they open it up, and I'm dead serious. We're all this, going. We'll, we should go. No, we'll oh, yeah. go. Yeah, we're and in. I'm going to give it one shot. If yep. it's not original ambiance, that's the last time I'll ever go. Uh, yeah, you mean are you talking about like decor and everything, or De- just the, the whole shebang, man? Oh, you the- know they're not going to do that. Well, then I'll go one time, and that's it. And we're going to have to go to Grand Prairie to do it. Yeah, that's all right. I don't know. Who knows? It could be a big resurgence. They could be popping up everywhere here of late. A new awesome. all the other. I'm, 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 I want a resurgence of ponchos. Oh no! But- raise, raise, raise the flag. Raise. The flag. Raise Nobody. The flag, buy some yes. cottontail wipes. I mean, you know, just make it, make it day. <laughs> Nobody wants a resurgence of ponchos. Uh, sir, you're looking at somebody right, right yeah. across from you. Yeah. Two of us. Add me to that list. Yeah. Where was where was the steak and nail on Camp Bowie? It was uh, where Fred Fred's is at now. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I, just, I never went to that one as a kid. Never yeah. went to that one. That was the Man, one I, I did go to. I'm I'm yeah. I'm I'm not a seasoned veteran by any stretch. I'd probably hit it once or twice. Yeah. Oh, I'm, in all I'm my days. Way. I mean, awesome. I felt like I'm, I was. I always felt like I was probably underdressed to go to Steak and Ale. I oh, didn't yeah? own the attire to go there. Looking back on it, it's no more, nothing. Probably was no different than walking into Texas Roadhouse or what's the yeah. other? Oh yeah. Um, Outback, Outback, Outback Steakhouse. Probably salt, one salt and what's a salt? Salt grass. Salt, salt grass. Salt grass. Not bad. Not bad. Salt grass has that great rye bread they bring out. Yes, they do. Butter. Yes, they oh, do. That is delicious. Just, just yeah, just lather it in butter. Oh yeah. We can't yeah. forget about the Hofbrau. Oh yeah. Yes. Now once the yes. the university location closed, I was yeah. kind of out. Kind of a buzzkill. Yeah. 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 Kind of out, but well, whatever. And, yeah. All right. So Sean, when we look at this case. We're talking about somebody who has, he's been diagnosed, uh, schizophrenia. Okay. And part of the court's order is that he is forced to take medication, which based on the facts that we know, um, seem to work, if you will, in the sense that he is now competent. Now, keep in mind, he's incarcerated awaiting to be executed so when we look at a case at this uh, this magnitude this was a big deal in 1989 in fort worth that's a a brutal offense a brutal crime we've got three people in custody three people charged ultimately three people convicted but when we look at these death penalty cases walk us through what from the attorney's standpoint who who's prosecuting and who's defending these these high profile death penalty cases? What kind of attorney? Sure. So let's we'll start with the prosecution side. It's obviously going to be your you know most experienced, seasoned, you know lifelong prosecutors that have probably been doing it for twenty plus years. Obviously, in order to be qualified to even you know try a death penalty case. You know, you have to have, I mean, I would assume a lot of them are board certified in criminal law. They've tried X number of murder cases. So it's going to be, you know, the best of the best, the most experienced prosecutors from the defense attorney side, you know, as, as you can appreciate a, you know, a lot, most, if not all of these people that are charged with capital murder and facing the death penalty. I mean, these are people who can't afford their own attorney. It's not like they're hiring a Jeff Kearney or a Reagan Wynn. They are, uh, you know, on the appointment wheel, and they are appointed a, you know, criminal defense attorney. Um, when I was a prosecutor in Austin, there were a number of defense attorneys that were on that capital, you know, murder appointment wheel, the death penalty wheel. And again, those were, you know, your most experienced. They had to have had a certain number of murder cases that they had defended. I mean, it was, it was a whole list of qualifications and experience that, that one must have because, you know, obviously, whether you're the prosecutor or the criminal defense lawyer, when, when you're talking about potentially, you know, the state taking someone's life, I mean, you know, you, you want to make sure that you've got, you know, the best of the best dealing with that on both sides. Typically, what is what is a public defender paid? You know, it, it's... 
there's different counties do it differently. And when I say that, like when I was in law school at SMU, my third year of law school, I wore, I, one of the classes I took was this SMU criminal justice clinic. And we basically represented indigent people, mm-hmm. you know, clients yeah. that couldn't afford an attorney. And, and we, we weren't yet licensed, but we had a, our third year bar card and we could practice, you know, with, with the you know obviously under the supervision of a licensed attorney dallas had a public defender's office when i was in austin the there were lawyers that were on the appointment wheel and that's what they would call it because it was basically like you know kind of would take turns you know and these are hundreds hundreds of attorneys on this wheel but for, regardless of you know the misdemeanor or the felony or whatever the defendant was was you know charged with, they would basically you know go down the list and you know you get paid by the county. But a lot of those people on the wheel, especially the, the capital punishment wheel, I mean th- these were guys that you know eighty percent of or sixty percent of their practice may have been you know hired clients, so they weren't necessarily public defenders. They just were very experienced attorneys that were on the appointment wheel because it was, you know, steady income, steady business, but they also, you know, were very good at what they did and had people that were hiring them privately. So uh, th- I would imagine the, the average public defender, because we actually had one when I was, this was back in 2003 when I was in that SMU criminal justice clinic, but I mean, it's, it's, it's not high paying. I mean, I would say it's equivalent to, you know, what a prosecutor's making probably mm-hmm. without all the great benefits. So back in 2003, I mean, it's probably sixty thousand mm. dollars. You know, nowadays maybe seventy-five to eighty. Um, so yeah, I mean, they're not doing it for the paycheck. Obviously, they're doing it because they believe in in justice. Yeah, well, and they they believe in the Constitution, right. and that everyone's entitled to you know a fair trial and adequate representation, regardless of how heinous the crime is they're accused of committing. So, on the lines of justice. We're not it doesn't even have to be a capital murder or aggravated robbery or anything of the sorts. But what walk us through when you've got a defendant who clearly um, seems to be incompetent mentally? Sure. What, sure. What steps? To, what What's that look like in court? So, from my experience, my personal experience as a prosecutor in Austin, we actually had a mental health docket. And uh, people that had, you know, obviously, you know, where they had been examined, questioned by, by, you know, physicians that deal with that. And they were basically certified, yes, this person does have schizophrenia or this person does, is bipolar, whatever it was. We had a separate docket and there was a judge that heard nothing but, you know, cases involving defendants that that had, you know, mental health issues. Obviously, you know, as y'all know, you, you've probably heard a lot of times, you know, people try and claim insanity as a defense. And that's a very, very high burden. I don't think a lot of people realize that, how high of a burden it is to prove that to the court. And a lot of times, you know, if there's someone who's mentally inc- deemed mentally incompetent to stand trial, they will go, um, you know, they'll go to a psychiatric ward and they'll be medicated and then they'll be deemed competent and then they can actually go to trial you know somewhat similar to you know similar but different to what we're discussing here where someone was obviously forced to take medication so they were deemed competent to be executed um so it just uh you know you obviously you know just because someone is mentally incompetent or mentally deficient or has a low IQ, it doesn't obviously excuse them of the crime that they've committed. I mean, you know, the mens rea, which is the mental component of the criminal activity, I mean, it's, it's still there, but they're certainly dealt with differently. What's your opinion of uh, ultimately, ultimately, uh, the Texas Criminal Court of Appeals, I think is what it was, uh, yep. said that. Um, he should not be forcibly he he should, he should not be made forcibly to take his medication to make him competent uh, yeah what's your opinion of the ethics of of a, of a judge ordering that and a and a prosecutor demanding it making the argument for it 
Sure. Man, it depends on which decade of my life you ask that question. Right. I, I <laughs> right. mean, it's, uh, and I, you know, and even to this day, I mean, you go back and forth on it because, you know, if it's my loved one that was murdered, obviously I'm going to answer that question differently. Right. Uh, from a fundamental basis, I, you know, I kind of have, I have personally have issue with a judge or a court system or a prosecutor forcing an individual to take medication for the sole purpose of them, you know, maintaining or regaining their competency so that we can put a needle in their arm. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I do believe in capital punishment. I do believe in the death penalty. I, I think that, you know, uh, it has its place. Uh, you can certainly argue that it really isn't as much of a deterrent as, right. as some people would. I mean, the studies are pretty, you know, it, that pretty much there's some empirical evidence that backs that up. Um, but, you know, I, you know, if, as, as you asked me that question and as I answer it today, I mean, yeah, that, that kind of bothers me that, you know, a court could force someone to take meds so that they can kill them. Mm -hmm. I think that's the issue too. I mean, I think it's, it's not so much the component of them forcing the medication, right? Right. Because that's it's, it's why they why it's 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 the why which is yeah it's the intent yeah I mean he's got a well documented history while he's incarcerated, uh, just making a mess of a cell if you will and sure lying in that catatonic state yeah. and, and yep. you know he's got some what I think what could be described as disturbing behaviors while he's incarcerated right but again it goes back to. I'm, you know, taking the medication, forcing the medication. Okay. But I, I don't know. That's a, that's a tough one. That's it is. Well, and, and, and I don't know the answer to the question that I'm about to pose or the statement I'm about to make, but you know, I would be surprised in 2023 if, if that is something that's allowed Yeah, where you can, and I, I don't know. I mean, maybe they do it that way, but where you could force someone to take medication, basically to deem them competent in order to, you know, you know, put them to sleep. But I mean, you know, I realize times change. I mean, there's all sorts of instances in our history where things change, but I don't know. Well, and what I'm about to say will certainly get me sentenced to uh, at least a year in purgatory, if not <laughs> eternal damnation. But there are some people like this fellow uh, Stephen Staley, Staley, who would probably be better off with a successful needle prick. Sure, I mean he's he's a miserable Whoa. human being. Sure, fair enough. So anyway, I'll see you in hell. <laughs> no, but but to your point, I mean, you know, and like I said earlier, I I believe in the death penalty. I think there is a place for it. And there are, in my opinion, some people that aren't deserving of, of a life, yeah. <laughs> you know, because of things that they've done. And, uh, and, you know, certainly if you're a family or friend of a victim, you know, I, I, I can't even imagine what that would be like. It's hard now, though. I mean, you look at the Innocence Project and sure, things that have yes. exonerated people, man. Yeah. And it's like. Boy, no question. There's been innocent people put to death, and that just makes me sick. You know, we we had a professor in law school that would always, you know, I took a several, you know, I took a lot of criminal law courses. I actually took a death penalty class my my third year, and you know, he would always make the argument that it was better to set, you know, ninety nine guilty people free than right. to execute one innocent. Right. And, and and I certainly understand that that logic. Um, so yeah, it's. It's it's there's no question that there were some innocent people executed, and that's a that's a real hard pill to swallow, regardless of what your stance is on the death penalty. Because ultimately, as a, as in the profession, in the industry, the profession, the, the it's like being a medical doctor. You're devoted to your patients and in science, medical science. Well, the, as a lawyer, you're dedicated to the tenets of the law and the truth, right? I mean, what, sure. whether, whether you're a prosecutor or a defense attorney. Sure. Yep. Right. Yeah. When I, when I was a prosecutor, we took an oath and our oath was simply to seek justice, you know? And, yeah. And obviously as a defense attorney, your, your, your responsibility is to, you know, represent that individual with every ounce of 
you know, talent and experience you have. And, and uh, you certainly don't want to be a party to committing perjury, but, you know, the state has the sole burden of proving every element beyond a reasonable doubt. You know, the defendant doesn't have to prove they're innocent. The state has to prove they're guilty. So, I mean, I think that's why we have the scales of justice. So, yep. Well, Sean, as usual, thanks for tuning in. And I'm sure the, uh, I'm sure you're just going to stop at one margarita on National Margarita oh, yeah. Day. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Well, Mar- National Margarita Day was the other day. National Margarita Year. Yeah, exactly. Or month, right? <laughs> National Margarita Month. He's gonna, I think that could be, that, we could make that, that a thing. That could be a thing. Yeah, certainly. He's going to enjoy his margarita with his Vienna sausage taco. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> then, I'll, then I'm going to do my, my ab exercises, you know. I stop right. at one and I'll yeah, work out. <laughs> Resp- responsible, healthy. Hey, I I think a lot of people say that about you. Yeah. No, I, Separately, yeah, responsible and healthy. <laughs> yep. All right. As always, I appreciate the time, boys. Y'all have a wonderful night. You too. All right, man. See you, brother. All right. Take care, buddy. Bye. Bye. All right. We got to wrap it up. Yeah, we got to go. Steak and ale making a comeback. It's going to be exciting or complete disappointment. Um... We'll find out. Yeah. And you got to check us out. We'll give it a shot. Where you find us? Everywhere. Everywhere. YouTube, Signal 51 Chronicles. Hit the subscribe button for us. Go ahead and post a little comment if you want. Tell your friends. Tell share, your it friends. Your, share it on your share it on your your social media pages. And we can't forget all of the other podcast platforms, contrary to our friend Paul. Yeah, I don't know what he was I thinking. I don't know what he was thinking either. I think We're, it had something to do with the 24 beer he had that particular day. Oh, man. Well... Regardless, we're on all of them. All your preferred ones, Amazon, Apple, Spotify, all the other ones that you might listen to. Check us out. We'll see you guys next time. Spread the word. Roxo Media House.